good to be with you all. Let me open us up in a word of prayer before we get to God's word. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus right now as we go to the word. Or would you use your word to convict us, to correct us, to change us so that we can look more and more like your precious son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. If that's a little bit familiar to you, then maybe you've seen Hamilton before. These were the words from President Washington to a young Alexander Hamilton in that famed musical that bears Hamilton's name. And in this portion of it, President Washington is trying to impart some wisdom to this young, zealous Hamilton, who's ready to take on the entire world with the aim of not missing his shot and wanting the entire world to know his name. But if you're familiar with the story of Hamilton, you know that his zeal runs him to the brink. And though it's entertaining, it's a cautionary tale. Because Hamilton assumes that he's the smartest in the room, and he lives and he writes as if he's running out of time. And eventually he does run out of time, and so does his zeal. And Hamilton's character towards the end, I'm spoiling it for you if you haven't seen it, Hamilton's character in the end, while he's approaching his own death, says this about his own legacy. Legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you'll never get to see. Is that true? Were these characters in Hamilton right? It's true that we don't have control over who lives, who dies, and who tells our stories. But are we merely just living our lives planting seeds in gardens that we'll never get to see? Should we even be concerned about our legacy? And if so, what kind of legacy, especially for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, what kind of legacy should we hope to have? In this letter of 2 Timothy, Paul pens his farewell address of sorts, having labored for the sake of the gospel, and he wants to impart some wisdom to Timothy one last time. If you haven't done so already, please meet me in the letter of 2 Timothy. If you are using the Bibles provided, that's on page 995. If you don't own a Bible for your own, we would love for you to take that Bible home, to take it and read it so that you can have God's Word. And also, even as I go through the sermon today, I encourage you to keep God's Word open throughout. This letter of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. And most scholars believe that this is the last letter that he wrote. And he used this time to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy. Most scholars think this was around the year 67 AD, written after this widespread persecution in Rome under Nero that we were just learning about last week took place. Paul himself was in Rome at this point. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel and awaiting a a death sentence. And we know from church history, but also from the words of Paul himself, that he is approaching death. 
Because he says himself, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul is staring death in the face. But what's on his mind and heart? It's the gospel and the glory of God going forth. So he spends his time spurring on Timothy, his son in the faith, who's a young pastor in meeting of encouragement at that time, to hope in the same gospel that saved them and united them together. The same gospel that landed Paul in prison. And the same faith that would sustain Timothy as he labored on in ministry and life through trials, through suffering, through hardships. And brothers and sisters, this same gospel that we can believe by faith, is the same gospel that will sustain God's people today. Follow along with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear, clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. We'll focus our time in God's word on those first five verses. And if you are taking notes, you can write this down as the main idea. God's people, by God's grace, can leave a legacy of sincere faith. God's people, by God's grace, can leave a legacy of sincere faith. And we'll walk through the passage in three main points or three main truths about sincere faith. We'll talk about it as we go through it. First of all, God is the source of sincere faith. Secondly, the gospel is the substance of sincere faith. And lastly, sincere faith must be stewarded. It must be stewarded well. So first of all, God is the source of sincere faith. In this letter, Paul begins by introducing himself and he describes himself as an apostle. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, and this type of introduction would have been common in the rest of Paul's letters. Paul would go on to be used by God to do just what Jesus called his followers to do in Acts 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But if you know Paul, you know Paul was a very unlikely candidate to be an apostle. Paul, before he was an apostle, before he was a minister of the gospel, was a Pharisee. He was a zealous Pharisee. And you can read about his miraculous conversion in places like Acts chapter 9, or in Acts chapter 22, or in Acts chapter 26, or in Galatians 1. But hear what Paul says about himself in Philippians chapter 3. Circumcised on the eighth day, 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul, who is by his own account a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee, and a persecutor of the church, was now sitting in a Roman prison awaiting a death sentence for preaching the same gospel that he opposed before. How does that happen? Well, that happens because the Lord is in the business of turning his enemies into his faithful workers. And Paul doesn't even leave us in the dark about just how this happens. We begin at verse 1 of 2 Timothy Chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul makes it clear that the source of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the will of God. God is the one that saved Paul. God is the one that appointed him as an apostle. God is the only one that can turn this persecutor of Christians into one who will willingly and joyfully suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul is the most unlikely of candidates to not only be saved by God, but to be used mightily by God. But let me just say this. That's true of every single person. None of us are rescued from our sins and brought into new life through Jesus Christ because we were the best of the bunch. We were the most qualified or the most gifted or the most eloquent, the most charismatic. All of us, every single one of us, deserved judgment from God. All of us oppose the Lord. We deserve his wrath because of our sins. This thing about Paul describes himself elsewhere in scripture. He says he's the chief of sinners. And Paul's ministry was marked with suffering as he ministered in this life. He ministered with a thorn in his flesh so that he could know of God's all-sufficient grace for him. So Paul's salvation was by the will of God, but even Paul's suffering was by the will of God. Jesus, in Acts chapter 9, which you can read later, came to Ananias in a vision and wanted to assure him that Apostles Paul's salvation was sincere, that it was legitimate, that he doesn't need to be afraid, that he's not going to harm Christians anymore. This is what the Lord says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord says to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Why would Paul share all this in this greeting, though? It's because Paul wanted Timothy to know that the same gospel, the same faith, the same Lord that brought them to new life and salvation is the same Lord that will keep them until the very end. And that his suffering, Paul's suffering, including Timothy's suffering, will result in the glory and praise to God on the last day. But brothers and sisters, God not only saves, but he also sustains through suffering and any kind of hardship. And the very truth and the very nature of the gospel reminds us of that, which brings us to point two. The gospel is the substance of sincere faith. Look at that phrase at the end of verse one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, 
according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. This points us to the gospel. This points us to the gospel that Paul was suffering for. The same gospel that Paul proclaimed and the same gospel that united Paul to Timothy. This glorious gospel results in the promise of life for all of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel promise started in the garden. Although man sinned and rebelled, God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel would be bruised. And the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to this world in the flesh at the fullness of time to live a perfect life, to be completely obedient, to have his life poured out like a drink offering for all who would turn from their sins and put their faith in him alone for salvation. It was the will of God to crush Jesus on the cross, not for his sin, but because of our sins. And in fact, Jesus, when he prayed in the garden for that cup to pass before him, he concluded that God's will should be done. Which is why Jesus did not begrudgingly go to the cross. He did so joyfully for all of those who put their faith in him. Jesus went to the cross. He hung on the cross. He died. He was buried. And he rose from the grave in all power. But that's not even it. He didn't just rise in glory and check out from us. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to all of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit could comfort us and sustain us even as we live in this world. And guess what Jesus is doing right now? He's not just sitting around looking at his watch. He's praying for his people. God's word said that he is preparing a place for his people. And he is building his church. And one day, we will rise with him from the grave to be with him in glory forever and ever and ever. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Lord can save you, even you, today. He did that with Paul, who was formerly Saul, a persecutor of the church, and used him for his glory. If, Paul, if anybody could be saved... Or there is any evidence that anybody can be saved. It's the Apostle Paul. And if the Lord can save him, he certainly can save you. And you'd be surprised by the people you're sitting around in this room. We might look like we have it all together, but we are a mess apart from Christ. And we'd love to talk with you today after the service about how you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation. We plead with you, turn, in him, turn to him today, because though you deserve his wrath, he's offering mercy today for you. And a quick word about sincerity before we move on. Again, friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can be sincere in your beliefs or in your worldview, but you can also be sincerely wrong about that. Consider what Christ offers for you today. For my brothers and sisters, the Lord will make good on all of his promises. Every single area of your life, he is going to resurrect at the last day. Every single tear will be wiped away from your eyes. The Lord will bring life to every part of your life. He will rise you up from the grave and you will be with him eternally. 
which means you can trust in him for your eternity, and you can also trust in him today by faith. Look at verse 2. Where Paul says to Timothy, My beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is referring to the blessing of Aaron in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6 verse 24 where it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But because of the gospel, like Timothy, we have grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ today, right now. That's our standing before the Lord right now, Christian. You are a blood-bought son or daughter of the King. You have grace, mercy, and peace with him through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, grace and peace is not merely a greeting or something you can put at the conclusion of an email. Grace, mercy, and peace is ours because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Because he's merciful towards us. And that was all the Lord's doing. He's the source of faith, of sincere faith. And the gospel is the substance of sincere faith. So then how shall we live? What shall we do? Which brings us to point three. Sincere faith must be stewarded. Sincere faith must be stewarded. If you're thinking this is going to be an especially short sermon, I apologize, it won't be. The balance of our time will be spent on this third point. God is the source of our faith. And the Bible teaches that salvation is of the Lord and from the Lord. So the faith is not ours to do whatever we want with it. But rather, it's to be rightly managed, to be stewarded and guarded carefully. As many of you know, my family moved up a few months ago to the Maryland area. And lots of people in this room are very familiar with moving. With moving boxes, with packing tape, with finding scissors, and then refinding them, buying stuff that you thought you had and you lost, and then you buy new stuff and you find it again, right? Labeling your boxes, etc. It's a lot. Including the discussions, low-key arguments you might have with your spouse about what you should keep and what you shouldn't keep. But this time around, we use a moving company to help move all of our belongings from South Florida to Maryland, and I'm glad that we did that. But the job of the moving company was to receive our belongings and to deliver it. That's it. It wasn't their job to ask me, Tony, why do you have so many books? Which is a fair question, but that wasn't their job. And no one really had to ask, like, are the contents in this box, are they really fragile, or did you just write that? That's none of their business. It was their job to receive it, to handle it with care, and to make sure that it was delivered. And the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should be received, handled with care, and faithfully delivered. And this passage emphasizes that in so many different places. Just look again at verse 1, where Paul says he's an apostle, 
by the will of God. Or even in verse 3, which I'll read now. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Now, some of us might be thrown off by that phrase, as, his, as my ancestors did, that, that Paul uses here. We might find that a little puzzling. We don't really have any accounts of Paul's parents being faithful followers of Jesus or hope, those who hoped in the coming of the Messiah. But what Paul is doing here is just what the writer of Hebrews did in chapter 11, which we just heard a few minutes ago in the scripture reading. He's saying that faith in the promised Messiah that was concealed has now been revealed. And the forefathers and mothers in the faith who had faith in the coming of the Messiah, we as Christians are living out the faith that they had. And as Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. That means that since God's word and his promises were sufficient for people like Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David, his word is sufficient for Chevrolet Baptist Church. Brothers and sisters, pray, not only as we gather as a church, but as we scatter during the week, that we would truly be people of the word who stand on his promises, who receive his word, handle it with care, and willingly deliver it to those around us. The faith did not start with us, and it should not end with us. And Paul wanted to make sure of that in his life with Timothy. That's why he calls Timothy his son in the faith. He became a spiritual father for Timothy. He discipled him, he encouraged him, he corrected him, even from a cold Roman prison. He was trying to spur on Timothy in the faith. He prayed for him constantly, and he longed to see him that his joy would be made full, and he wanted Timothy to press on in the faith. And we all need somebody like Paul in our lives, don't we? Someone who's a little further along, that will remind us that we just need to be faithful. God will sort it all out. Somehow, some way. Just keep going. We all need people to commit to pray for us, right? And Paul says that he thanked God constantly as he remembered Timothy in prayer day and night. He's not praying to get released from prison, he's praying for Timothy. This should remind us that our lives and even our ministries should be marked by prayer. Paul didn't just preach the gospel to people. He was a man committed to fall on his knees and his face and pray to the Lord of all heavens. I think this should remind us of a few things by way of application. It's okay to tell people that you've been praying for them. It really is. Some time ago, in fact, this was maybe a year or so ago, when we were still down in South Florida, I got a call from my grandmother on Sunday morning. I missed her call. I called her back to see what's, what's going on, what's happening. And she said, oh, nothing. I just called you to let you know I've been praying for you. That was it. 
right before I was going to preach. I don't know how that sermon went, by the way, but who cares? My grandma was praying for me. That was enough. I was soaring at that point. Or even another dear sister in that same church who every time we see her, she says, I've been praying for you, and I pray for you all every single day. She wakes up at four in the morning to do so. What a blessing it is to hear from people that we know and love that they are going to the throne of grace on our behalf, even when we didn't ask them to do so. Church, let's remain in prayer for one another. Let's find ways to do that. Using the membership directory, for example. Or using your time in small groups to pray. Or if you know that you have members of these small groups, then commit to praying for them. Or even people that you serve with alongside in ministry in various different ways. Commit to be praying for them. And then tell them that you're praying for them. One other thing we can do is that we can come to church with the aim of, I'm going to walk away with at least one prayer request from somebody. Maybe they don't ask me to directly pray, but I've caught up with them enough to know this is a way that I can pray for them. And if you're one of those, like me, who loves to pray for people, but you often forget when they leave your sight, put them aside and pray for them on the spot. You have permission to do that. And many of us are doing that as well. We all need the encouragement that the Lord provides through prayer. And it seems like Timothy needed this encouragement as well. Look at verse 4. As I remember your tears, Paul says, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. It seems that Timothy needed some encouragement. And Paul was willing to give Timothy words of encouragement, not only in this letter, but also in 1 Timothy where he's encouraging him to not let anyone despise his youth, for example, or to watch out for false teachers, for example, or to endure hardships for the sake of the gospel. And Paul here says that he remembers Timothy's tears. Maybe from a hard ministry season that Timothy would have endured, or maybe even tears from the last time that Paul and Timothy would have saw each other. Most scholars believe that around 62 AD, so several years before 2 Timothy, is when um, Paul commissioned Timothy to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Timothy probably thought, I can't do this without you, or what's going to happen to you in the midst of all this persecution? This shows that they had a brotherly love and affection for each other that was rooted in the gospel that they shared. And Paul was stewarding the faith well by investing his life into the life of Timothy, his son in the faith. Do you have someone like that who can invest into your life and speak into your life like that? A quick glance around our church, you'll notice that in our church, we have lots of kids. And we love the fact that we have lots of kids. That also means we have lots of younger families. And those young families tend to have lots of kids themselves. Lots of stuff to do. Lots of full schedules. Lots of things that you're trying to sort out in your lives. But there's a lot of wisdom already in our congregation. From those who are a little further along that can encourage us in the faith. 
So brothers and sisters, may we continue to strive to be a place where those generational gaps are not that important among us. Where those age gaps are not obstacles, but opportunities to show love and sincere unity for one another. For us to learn from each other and point each other to Christ. May this be a church where we not only long to disciple other people, but where we long for people to disciple us as well and be good stewards of the faith that's been delivered to us. So dear older saints, and I will not put you in any category. You can place yourselves in that category if you would like to. But let me just say, in case you didn't know, our church needs you. We have not moved beyond you. We need your wisdom. We need your joy. We need your steadfast hope. And everything's going to be fine. The Lord's going to sort it out. Brothers and sisters, notice that there is not an age requirement here. We can try to figure out how old Paul was and how old Timothy was at this time, and we can figure those things out and speculate, but that's not the point. The point is that Paul took spiritual responsibility for Timothy. That's the point. And some of us may love to disciple or pour our lives into other people, but we may find it a hard thing to be on the receiving end of that. We might think that this is sort of hierarchy, and if someone disciples me, then that, what does that say about me? Let's, let's kill all that if there's any of that among you. We need to make room in our lives for the sake of these kind of relationships to happen and to flourish. So brothers and sisters, give yourselves to the church. Give yourselves to each other. As Charles Spurgeon once said, concerning these kind of relationships we should have in the church and with one another, he says this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And at the moment, I did join it. If I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth. And it is. So if you're a member of this church, give yourself to this church in the ways that we seek to facilitate these kinds of relationships. And I'm not saying that they don't already exist. I'm saying keep doing it. Keep going. Whether it's through the small groups that meet during the week or during our regular Sunday gatherings where we stay long afterwards and they have to kick us out. Or through the various ministries that many of you serve in as part of this church. There are built-in connection points for discipleship already there. Even do our prayer gatherings like we have this evening. That's a great opportunity to have a conversation with someone you don't know that well. There's more opportunities to do that. And if you're here and you're visiting, you're from out of town, you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a member of a gospel preaching church, praise the Lord. Give yourselves to that church. Go all in, however long the Lord would have you there. And that may take a lot of work based on the season that you're in, but the work is worth the effort. 
So Paul, reminding Timothy of this sincere faith that they share and the right stewarding of it, reminds Timothy that even his faith is one that he inherited, one that he received from two godly women. Let's look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So as Paul remembers Timothy, he remembers his tears, but he also remembers his sincere faith, a faith that was passed down to him from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. But what does Paul mean here by sincere faith? That word there for sincere means a faith that is without hypocrisy. And the word hypocrite, meaning to be a hypocrite, is one who wore a mask. That's what actors used to do. They would put on a mask, and they were called hypocrites. Now, someone might be here thinking, see, that's why I haven't joined a church. See, that's why I haven't gone all in, because churches are full of hypocrites. Or, I don't want to become a hypocrite. So I'm going to take a step or two back. But that's not what Paul is trying to indicate at all in this text. Paul's not saying that Timothy's faith was a flawless or perfect faith. And we know that from the very nature of these letters and what Paul is encouraging Timothy in. Timothy had weak faith at times. Timothy was weak at times, right? That's why he said God did not give us a spirit of fear. So don't be fearful, right? Sincere faith, therefore, it's not about being flawless. It's about being faithful to the Lord. Sincere faith is not about wearing a mask. Let's think about it. How would Paul even know that Timothy needed encouragement? He was probably willing to share that with him. He didn't have an appearance of godliness without the form. He really aimed to be godly, even if that meant that he was found to be seen as weak by other people. And church, it must be said once again, as we gather, leave your mask at the door. We don't need that here. We can be authentic with one another. There's only one Savior, and none of us are him. But even in recalling Timothy's sincere faith, as he does in this verse, Paul makes mention of two very important people, which we'll talk about shortly. But there's one glaring absence here from the text. Kids in the room. Who's not mentioned in verse 5 that you would assume should be mentioned about encouraging Timothy in his faith? You can shout out. His father. His father's not mentioned in the text. Why? These women, along with Timothy, are mentioned in Acts chapter 16, likely when Paul would have met Lois and Eunice, and when he would have seen examples or evidence of Timothy's sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, probably around 20 years before the writing of 2 Timothy. Acts 16 verse 1 says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. 
but his father was a Greek. Which means, Timothy's father was not a follower of Jesus. So Timothy's father's absence from 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, he's absent there because he was also absent spiritually in Timothy's life. And in his father's place stood these spiritual giants. And I'm not just talking about Paul. I'm talking about his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Isn't that beautiful? And this flies in the face of any sort of modern depictions that people might have of the church or ministry or these celebrity pastors. Timothy was an ordinary and faithful pastor. was trained up by these ordinary and faithful women, Lois and Eunice. And what did they do? What was their secret? It was their faithfulness. They believed God and kept on believing in God. There's no secret at all. Paul commends their faith because he likely saw examples and evidence of their faith. And he saw the fruit of their faith that they imparted to Timothy by seeing Timothy's life and his faith. Their lives commended the gospel that they believed and they proclaimed. They believed in God and they believed in his word. We see an example of that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, for example. Paul tells Timothy there to continue in the faith and in what you had heard. And Paul tells Timothy that from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings. So we can assume that Lois and Eunice had something to do with that in Timothy's life. And they didn't have best-selling books. They weren't seminary trained. And the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Lois and Eunice, except that they had sincere faith in God and his word. And their sincere faith was stewarded well. And I'm sure this lands on, in so many different ways, on us. I'll try to address the scope of how this can fit and apply to us. So word for everybody in the room, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have inherited that from somebody else. Somebody passed down the faith to you. Whether it's through their sharing of the gospel or their discipling of you. If you're fortunate enough to still have them around, praise the Lord for them, but find a way to thank them, like even today. Call them, text them, send them a letter. Let them know that you are grateful for the Lord to the Lord for their stewardship in your life. And ask the Lord how you can be that same sort of example for someone else. Kids and teens in the room. Many of you have godly parents, one or both of them, who are aiming to raise you in the fear and admonition of the Lord. My encouragement to you is to let them. Just receive it. Follow them as they follow Christ. Follow them as they leave family devotions, however they fumble about doing it, or when they aim to encourage you in God's word just throughout the day, or when they remind you of what is true in this world full of lies that you are in. Let them love you by passing down the faith to you. For those who are mothers and grandmothers, remember that your sincere faith matters. The ordinary
ordinary and even mundane means of trying to impart the faith to your children or your grandchildren may seem like it's not getting anywhere at times. Maybe your kids are still young and they kind of still hang on to your every word or maybe they've gotten a little bit older and they decide to do their own thing or they don't listen as much anymore. Maybe your kids are long gone from your home and now your role is one as a prayer warrior for your sons and daughters. Press on in the faith, even if you don't see immediate results. The Lord sees Trust that he is working even when you go to bed exhausted from the day. Serve your families well and rest in his faithfulness. And having said that, some men in the room may be acquainted in, with this passage for another reason. Because you want to raise your kids in the fear of the Lord, but you're doing that by yourselves. I pray that you are encouraged from this passage that the Lord is truly faithful. Ask the Lord to fill in the gaps with men who can, like Paul to Timothy, impart the faith to them and encourage them. But know that he sees you, he loves you, he has not forgotten about you. Tim Chalice has a book called Devoted, Great Men and Their Godly Moms. And in it, he has several testimonies of these faithful mothers who serve their children in simple but extraordinary ways. Women like Amelia Taylor, who would lock herself in a room and pray for hours for the salvation of her son. Hudson, the eventual missionary to India. And when her son Hudson Taylor told his mom that he gave his life to Christ, Amelia said, I had already been rejoicing over your salvation. I knew the Lord would answer that prayer. But women like Mary Borden, who blessed her son, William Borden, as he left school and this life of prestige that he was going to inherit because he wanted to go share the gospel with people who had never heard it. And William, shortly after that, passed away. Mary, his mother, found his Bible, and in it found these words, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Or women like Eliza, who shared the gospel with her children so faithfully, so much that she prayed this prayer. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at that day of judgment if they not lay hold of Christ. Her son, Charles Spurgeon, heard that prayer and remembered that. And the Lord used it in his life. And Spurgeon, reflecting on the impact of his mother, said, never could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. I think we all can say amen to that. Press on, dear sisters. To the husbands and fathers among us, the Lord called us to be a faithful presence in our home. We are called to lead our families. We're called to lead them, to feed them, to guide them, correct them, and protect them. And that includes spiritually. If you are doing that, brothers... Press on. Keep going. The Lord is faithful. And if you feel that, brother, that you have not been doing that well, start today. Your family needs you. They're waiting for you to lead in this way. Parents who feel like you've done your very best with your kids to impart the faith to them, 
and they've decided to go their own way. Trust that the Lord sees you, that he loves you, that he hears your cries for your sons and daughters. Continue to pray for them and rest in God's sovereign arms as you do so. And for those who don't have children, or maybe you walk in here and you kind of get overwhelmed by the fact that there are so many kids among us. Maybe you feel like this doesn't really quite land on you as well. Let me just say, the role of stewarding these children, these things that we have in a church, is not just for the parents, it's for the whole church. So encourage the parents, pray for the parents. Find ways to connect with or communicate with the children and teens. Try to encourage them. Maybe they'll hear something from you that their parents have been saying for years in a way that will encourage them. And parents, if that happens where you hear something and you're like, I've been saying that, like, just keep it in. Just, you don't need to... Anyway, you get me. So find ways to encourage them. And serve in children's ministry. Amen? be a great way to encourage the families among us. All of us can steward God's word and the faith well by making God's word come to bear in every area of our lives. We pray that we will all aim to do that. Let me share one final point of application. If you're still thinking like, all right, so what do we do with this? What does this mean? One final thing. Share the gospel and... Be willing to share your lives. I mean, that's what Paul did in, to Timothy. And Paul also says this in 1 Thessalonians 2. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not only with you the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. And doesn't that sound like that's what the church should be? That we're sharing not only the gospel, but our very lives with one another. And that goes beyond a discipleship class or a course that you could use or just imparting information to each other. Let's look at 2 Timothy. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy is not his apprentice. He's his son in the faith. And Paul also acknowledges the saints that went before him. And Paul prayed for Timothy constantly and remembered his tears and he longed to be with them so that he would be filled with joy. That's beyond just mentorship. That's sincere love that we can have for one another. And Paul remembers Timothy's sincere faith and the faith of Lois and Eunice. Not their teaching, not the classes they led, but their faith that they lived out. And doesn't this remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because God did not just send down information for us to get and truths for us to learn. He sent his son in the flesh to dwell among us. And Jesus didn't just get out here and preach or even speak words of blessing and healings. He touched people. He didn't just teach his disciples. He led them. He, he fed them. He ate with them. He lived with them. He taught them. He walked with them. He loved them. He didn't just die on a cross as a heartless substitute. He gave his very life, the joy oh, set for him, so that we could be his brothers and sisters. So we must share the gospel, brothers and sisters. 
We are called to share the faith with others. Even as a church, we are called to make disciples, yes and amen, but we are also called to share our very lives with one another. So may we labor to steward our sincere faith well. And may we aim to sow seeds even in gardens that we don't get to see. Charles Bridges once said, the sea may lie underground until we are there and then spring up. And may we, by God's grace, leave a legacy of sincere faith. Let's pray. God, give us grace to live lives of sincere faith and humility, trusting in you throughout. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to live like you want us to live in this world, to endure hardships, to give ourselves to the church, to steward the responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus, to impart the faith to others. Lord, help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us to not lose heart. In Jesus' name, amen.